0: Oh,
1: okay.
0: oh. You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought.
1: From Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm your host, Claire Navarro. So far this season, for the most part, we've delved into research focused on American life and culture. But in the coming weeks, we turn our attention outward. And I don't just mean beyond the borders of the US. Here at Washington University in St. Louis, researchers are exploring big questions about our solar system and beyond. One of these researchers is Bradley Jolliffe, professor of Earth and Planetary Sciences. In his research and teaching, Professor Jolliffe focuses in part on our nearest neighbor, the moon. So 40 years after the last manned mission to the moon, how do scientists like Jolliffe study it? And what mysteries remain? For answers to these questions and more, stay tuned. Here's Dr. Jolliffe.
0: A lot of times we, we tend to think of the moon in a way of, oh, you know, we've, we've been there and done that. We studied the moon, we've got samples from it. But I think of it like a differentiated planet because it has a core, it has a mantle and a crust and a rich geologic history. And it's really a a complex place. I mean, we learned an awful lot by going there with humans. And I I think we sometimes fall into the trap of thinking that we know it all when we really don't. What I'm encouraged by is that I've got students here at, at Washington University who share my enthusiasm, who recognize that the moon is a great place to go and and study.
1: Jolliffe's enthusiasm for the moon began in what may seem like an unlikely location, South Dakota, specifically the mineral deposits around Mount Rushmore.
0: My training is in geology, and, and I actually started by working on a project in the Black Hills of South Dakota in granitic terrain. Well, at the same time as I was getting my Ph.D. working in that area, I worked with a professor, Jim Papike who is now at the University of New Mexico, who was one of the early scientists working on Apollo samples. And he got me interested, got me hooked on, on Apollo samples and, and lunar geology and, and trying to understand these things. And so it just so happened that when I was graduating, a position came open actually here at Washington University, working on... Apollo samples. And so, even though that was not my primary specialty, I thought, well, this is a good opportunity to take something that I've pretty much just got hooked on and and run with it.
1: For many years, scientists within the Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences have been working with lunar rocks, including those Apollo samples that first hooked Professor Jolliffe. He and his colleagues continue to learn a lot from these pieces of the Moon.
0: The idea is to look at the samples, figure out what they're made of, what's their chemistry, what's their mineralogy, and then try to put that in a context of our knowledge of a geologic framework and say, you know, how did they form? Where on the moon did they come from? Did they come from deep? Did they form at the surface? Um, What can they tell us about the, the, the current distribution of materials at the moon, but also the past history?
1: Not all of the samples studied at Washington University were collected by humans. Other pieces of the moon made their way to Earth without the help of spaceships.
0: Once we learned to recognize lunar materials from the Apollo samples, it wasn't long before we started finding meteorites on Earth that are actually pieces of the moon blasted off by big impacts. And one of the samples that was obtained recently by uh, my colleague Randy Korotov, who, who is sort of the dean of lunar meteorites, is this one called uh, Schisser 161.
1: According to Jolliff, Shizzer 161 is a pretty typical lunar meteorite. It has bits and pieces of many different rock fragments that have been kind of welded together.
0: So in one meteorite, it's like having a whole little sample collection.
1: This type of rock is called a breccia, and each little breccia fragment, or clast, is analyzed.
0: What we find interesting is in this one small meteorite with these little clasts, There appear to be pieces of rock that formed and and have components that come from deep in the moon, like toward the base of the moon's crust or even its upper mantle. And this is telling us some things about the moon that we really didn't quite understand before, even though we have all of these Apollo samples and 40 years of analysis of materials.
1: In the case of Schisser 161, analysis revealed that this meteorite resulted from a very large impact of the upper lunar crust. But looking at samples, whether those from the Apollo missions or meteorites like Schizzer 161, isn't the only way that scientists study the moon. For example, Jolliffe is also part of the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter camera science team.
0: One of the places where, where I come in is I'm interested in the distribution of materials all, all around the moon. And so I use remote sensing, orbital remote sensing, to try to say, OK, wh- where on the moon did, did these things come from?
1: The Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter was launched in 2009, in part to scope out information about potential landing sites for future manned missions to the moon. But it's also providing lots of new data.
0: So the orbiter actually is doing a number of things. It's imaging the surface like we've never had before. It's almost as good as what we have for Mars now. We can see things down to a half a meter per pixel, which means we can see boulders. If you were standing there casting a shadow, we could see your shadow.
1: This type of imaging provides information about areas of the Moon that had, until recently, been puzzles for scientists.
0: Well, one of the things that we we knew about even before the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter was that there was something unusual in the northern Farside Highlands. There's a, a spot that's actually rich in the radioactive element thorium, and so it showed up as a beacon in gamma-ray spectrometer data. But we didn't know what it was. So with the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, Believe me, one of the very first things we were imaging was that site.
1: This site is called the Compton Belkovich Thorium Anomaly. It lies between two craters named Compton and Belkovich. And here's a fun fact the Compton crater was named after Arthur Holly Compton, former chancellor of Washington University. But let's get back to the orbiter.
0: Turns out that right where this thorium anomaly is, there's a little volcanic terrain. And we, we hadn't recognized it before, but now we could because we had the imaging. The other thing that's interesting about it is it appears to be made up of a rock type that's rather rare, but it's one that we've studied here in this department. It's actually the the lunar equivalent of granite.
1: Of course, answers like these lead to more questions. Researchers are now exploring how this type of granite was formed. But how will these newer questions be answered?
0: I guess what I'd really like to do is go back to the moon, go to the Compton-Belkovich location, collect some samples, bring them back to Earth. Well, okay, that's not going to happen anytime soon. Probably not in my career. So maybe I could send a robot there and let the robot do it.
1: And this leads us to yet another type of exploration. We've talked about rock samples and orbiters. But what about robots? Over the past year, the Mars rover Curiosity has been all over the news. But since 2004, Jalef has been working with another Mars rover, named Opportunity, a rover that he believes deserves a special distinction.
0: I consider it to be the luckiest spacecraft in the solar system. First of all, if you think about how it landed, it landed with airbags, and so it bounced around on the surface. And and we now know from looking at at, uh, orbital images that it bounced and made a big curve, and it just kind of rolled and tumbled right into a little crater. So it was like a solar system or a cosmic hole in one. And then when we popped up the mast, sitting right in front of us were some rocks that sort of answered the major questions we had for that landing site.
1: That was the first of many successes for Opportunity. It went on to explore deeper craters, providing a greater understanding of Mars' geologic past. And it just kept going.
0: The rover a long time ago drove out of its landing ellipse and into a whole new geologic terrain. So it was almost like getting a new mission. It's really a fantastic example of how a mission to the surface of another planet should go.
1: Nearly 10 years after it landed, Opportunity is still roving. And Jolliffe is part of the team that decides where it should go next.
0: Every other day or so we have operations meetings and and I'm part of the long-term planning team. And so from time to time, I lead the discussion that, that says, Here's what the rover's been doing. Here's what we're planning on doing today. Here's what we need to be doing in the next coming weeks or months. And then we go about doing geologic exploration on the surface of Mars. So that, that's that been a wonderful opportunity, not only for me to learn about Mars, but also to see how this kind of thing works.
1: So to get back to the moon, with all of this experience with a Mars rover, Jolliffe sees a great opportunity for learning more about a place much closer to the Earth than Mars.
0: So we could have a very nice, what NASA would consider, discovery-level mission that would send a lander to a place like Compton-Belkovich with a rover, much like the Mars rovers, perhaps something that could be teleoperated.
1: Unlike the Mars rover, a tele-operated lander on the Moon wouldn't have an extreme time delay with Earth. And Joliffe already has a wish list of where he'd like this potential lander to go.
0: On the far side of the moon, there is a giant impact basin called South Pole-Aitken Basin. It's about 2,500 kilometers in diameter, so it's, it's huge. And there's a huge question about the solar system that we could address there.
1: This huge South Pole-Aitken Basin was created some four billion years ago during a huge impact bombardment of the solar system this same bombardment left visible scars on Mercury and Mars.
0: And the South Polyakan Basin is of interest to us because it's it's the biggest and the oldest of the well-preserved basins. So if we could go and get some samples of that material and figure out when it formed, we can really understand something about this giant cataclysm that took place a real important period of time. On Earth, life was just starting to get a hold, environments that were habitable for for life to get going were sort of in their formative periods and so understanding what was going on at that time and what caused that cataclysmic bombardment is is a key question there are some very interesting ideas and they're testable
1: so the south pole aitken basin is one intriguing destination but where else should the rover travel
0: second place is the poles of the moon the permanent shadow areas are some of the coldest places in the solar system and there are ice deposits there, we now know this. We don't know the composition of the ices, we don't know how they formed. But this is interesting because, well, first of all, where did the ice come from? Can it tell us anything about where Earth's oceans and water came from, if they weren't part of the planet to start? And how might we use those? Is there a fresh supply of water just waiting for us to go to the poles and melt it? Or use that water to produce oxygen and hydrogen for fuel? So, you know, these are questions that we could easily answer these with a mission to one of the poles.
1: Whether it involves examining rock samples, using data from orbiters, sending rovers, or even sending astronauts, Jalif believes there's a fascinating future for lunar exploration.
0: I love Mars, don't get me wrong, and it's a, it's a goal for human exploration, but it's still a ways off in our future. Right now, I've got students who would love to be those next astronauts, learning how to live on the moon, learning how to work there, doing some of the good exploration that remains. And, and oh, by the way, have you ever seen the earth from the moon? It's gorgeous. And the moon still has some wonderful geologic questions that we don't have the answers to. And it's our nearest neighbor. We should figure these things out.
1: Many thanks to Brad Jolliffe for contributing to Hold That Thought. You can find a link to his faculty page on our website. We're at thought.artsci.wustl.edu. That's thought.artsi.wustl.edu. Thanks for listening.